Good evening, everybody. Uh, we're broadcasting at 8 o'clock. However, we're doing uh, pre-recorded because I want to watch the president's speech as well. So um, even though you're watching this at 8 o'clock, we were filming it at 6. But we do have a very special guest tonight. Uh, Bill Federer will be with us shortly. But before we get to Bill Federer, I wanted to tell you that uh, we have Dr. James Todaro. James Todaro. But, but he's, you, you said he's going to be tomorrow night. We're actually going to air him on Saturday night. Oh, got it. Cool. I think. We don't have anything scheduled for Saturday night. We're going to air uh, the doctor on Saturday night because tomorrow night uh, I managed to arrange having Madison Cawthorn, uh, the the uh, paraplegic, uh, who is going to hopefully be the youngest elected Congress member in the history of the United States. It's so awesome. Uh, he was um, on the uh, uh, Republican National Convention last night. You saw him stand for the last portion um, of the pledge and they, they lifted him and uh, trem a tremendous story. Loves the Lord. Uh, really neat guy. I had had the privilege to meet him. My daughter had introduced me to him long before he had had uh, plans to run for the Congress. And then when he was running for the Congress, I met him when he was in the primary. He didn't, he, he, it didn't look like he had a real good chance, but he was working hard. And uh, then uh, of course he, he did get the Republican nomination for that seat He's up against a, a retired, uh, I think, Air Force colonel, uh, Democrat, and uh, the polls look real good that he may be the youngest elected congressman in the history of the United States. He's got a tremendous testimony and a story, and he'll be with us tomorrow night, which is really exciting. Uh, I called him up. He answered my call. He said yes. I asked him if he wanted to come tonight. Uh, and I hadn't heard back from Bill yet. And he said, I, I can't do tonight, but I'll do tomorrow night, Pastor Rob. So uh, that's, that's a, <laughs> I don't know how that, that, the door just opened on that one. Yeah, so awesome. yeah. we're, 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 we got some, and I have to tell you, as, as wonderful as Madison is and, and Dr. Todaro, who he graduated from the university at 14 years of age, almost like a Doogie Hauser, and he's going to be sharing some data. And that'll make now eight doctors that we've had, uh, no less than eight doctors on the program. And this man is remarkable. So uh, two nights following, and tonight is big. Uh, he has been probably one of our more, more frequent yeah. guests, but rightfully so, because he is a storehouse of historical information and relatable to everything we're dealing with in the country right now. And as you can see the contrast between the two conventions that we're looking at socialism or a constitutional republic, we're watching uh, as you know Marxist Black Lives Matter organization uh, burning cities. We're watching what's happening in Wisconsin, all the things taking place. And it, one party's not denouncing it, although uh, the, the presidential uh, candidate for the Democratic Party, Biden, did finally denounce it. But the rest are just completely silent. And, and we're watching the nation. This is a decision whether we're going to be socialist slash Marxist or we're going to be a constitutional republic, which we are founded to be. And I can't think of anyone better to speak on this topic than our guest tonight. And I want to welcome my dear friend, my brother, and a man I deeply love, Bill Federer. Hey, buddy. Hey, Bill. Hey Rob, I, Mike, and I'm great, great to be with you. Uh, yeah, and and, and uh, I, I was I wanted to tell everybody where you are because you're traveling all the time. Where are you tonight? I can tell you're in a hotel room. Uh, Atlanta. <clears throat> Atlanta. Pastors conference tomorrow morning at the uh, Golf Club of Georgia, but oh. they're getting all the local pastors. Uh, and so, Pastor Rob, I, I want to let your uh, the the Godspeak uh, Calvary Chapel family know how important you are. I was at a meeting this past week in Washington, D.C., just outside in Pentagon City. Uh, President Trump came to our meeting only, you know, 
200 some odd people there. Uh, but half uh, half a dozen speakers mentioned Rob McCoy. Uh, mm -hmm. That what the, the stand that you're taking is making a national impact, and I believe it's inspiring other pastors. And this is a critical critical election. Uh, that the stakes are higher than they've ever been. Uh, if the other side uh, is able to do uh, and get in, they won't let us up for air. Yeah, it'll be China. Yeah. It'll be bulldozing churches down. It'll be uh, arresting the pastors. And uh, thank God that the Lord's been on your side and he's going to continue to be on your side. Uh, a couple of the things that were brought up at that meeting. One is uh, an angle that I had not heard before. And uh, in uh, the Constitution uh, has the president and vice president serving for a four-year term. And uh, there was an act in 1792 on presidential succession, if there were like emergencies or a death or whatever, uh, they updated it in 1886. They updated it again in 1947. Uh, and so the president and vice president's term is up on January 20th. And this time around, it's going to be in the year 2021. And so this succession act says that if there is not a, another president, um, it, if the Electoral College had not certified who the next president's going to be, then the Speaker of the House yeah, becomes the acting president of the United States. Why is this important? Mail-in ballots. There's going to be over 50 million uh, new mail-in ballots, plus there's another 47 absentee ballots that are going to be sent out. Uh, and the thought is it will overload the postal system and they will do recounts. Uh, New Jersey, they had a, a primary and it took them six weeks to do the recounts. And 30% of the ballots get thrown out whenever they do recounts because you have the different parties challenging them. And then there's lawsuits over which ones should not be thrown out, which ones should. And so if they could drag out the presidential election results to January 20th, then Nancy Pelosi gets to be the president. Now, I'm not making this up. President Trump himself mentioned this. He said that the partying on election night may be a thing of the past because it may go on for weeks. Uh, Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch, he brought it up and said this is more than just a random speculation, there's some serious uh, threat here. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up as another thing for us to pray for. Um, now, last election, uh, when Hillary was running, I had some inside information people I was talking to. She was expecting 6% voter fraud around the country, and she thought that was enough to put her over the top. What happened was there was an overwhelming uh, response that Trump got in. Uh, so what does this mean? This means we have to have an overwhelming, overwhelming response. Uh, that means we have to get everybody out. And in a sense, I think that the good Lord is putting us in this position on purpose. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I wanted to just also point out here in California that when you receive your, your ballot on the envelope itself, you can see an R or a D. So if it's handled by anyone other than the voter, giving it to the registrar, the, the county clerk, putting it in their hands, uh, anyone can see that R&D, and if they're nefarious, they can throw it away if they have an allegiance to a specific party. It, 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 is, it is one of the most critical elections and one that is precariously positioned 
with what's taking place and how they're fomenting and creating this this problem with the virus so that we have to vote by mail. 50 million new, I mean, but there's 60, and now the hope is there's 60 to 80 million evangelical Christians in America of which only half are registered to vote. And, and of the half, only half of those vote in a presidential election. If we can move that and, and be very enthusiastic and start to awaken to our responsibility as citizens, and the Apostle Paul cherished his, his Roman citizenship and appealed to it and understood that form of government, we as Christians in a constitutional republic, we really need to step it up and the pulpits have to do something. Otherwise, we're, we're going Marxist. We're going socialist. Uh, just a couple other of the points. Uh, they said there is no system set up to match the signature on the bottom of the mail-in ballot with the person's signature that they signed to, let's say, get their driver's license. Uh, they said there's no way to match it up if the person voted at a polling booth and filled out a mail-in ballot. And there's no system set up so that somebody doesn't vote with a mail-in ballot in one state, and if they have an address in another state, vote with a mail-in ballot. With there is no system set up to make sure that this is going to be uh, without fraud. Uh, and we're experimenting with this brand new uh, mass mail-in on the most important election in the world. Yep. Uh, it, it makes no sense, uh, but it does when you see that uh, an orchestrated event is uh, a, a uh, situation that's been in, in part of their uh, wheelhouse of opportunities for quite a while. Yeah, they've been planning right. it. Yeah. You know that uh, the registration yes. card that I got in the mail, it says due to COVID-19, the law is requiring us to do mail and ballot. Well, how can you, they, they loosely use the word the law, but it was never passed through our legislator and on to the governor. The governor just made that. But it's interesting they use the law as their methodology, even though it didn't go through the process to form a law. Right. Um, there, there's actually the, the two types of laws. One is the, the, the government, the king, uh, and Louis XIV, the son king of France, is uh, notoriously reported to have said, um, uh, it is the law because I wish it. Yeah. Mm. And so you have this top-down law where it's just the wishes of the governor, and yet everyone else is calling it law. But the English common law had input from the people, and then America's form of government uh, had input from the people, and you have a bottom-up law where the law is an expression of the will of the people. Uh, so that that's a critical point. Mm. Um, now, I, I don't know if you want me to, to talk about my book on socialism. I do. Uh, I want you to talk <laughs> about whatever you want to talk yeah. about. Well, I, I had the privilege this week, Monday and Tuesday, to do two interviews on the 700 Club yeah. on the book on socialism. Uh, I've had the privilege of being on the 700 Club uh, three or four times earlier this year, but this was back-to-back -back two days. Uh, and Pat Robertson said that this is a serious issue and he wanted his viewership to see it. And so the first part of it, I went back to history, to Plato. And he writes in passing of uh, ancient city of Atlantis, highly civilized, uh, very successful, and it sinks in the ocean. And yet he keeps looking back to that as the perfect society. Uh, and then he explains democracy. 
and he says that democracy is the most charming form of government. It's like a bazaar or a marketplace where you can buy any viewpoints, like an embroidery patchwork with lots of colors. And the chief characteristic of a democracy is everybody tolerates each other. It's wonderful. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off. Till finally they're tolerating crooks and crime and fraud and broad daylight looting, and nobody does anything about it. Right. And criminals walking openly on the street, and people begin to feel this lawlessness, and they say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's when you have a mayor or a governor that comes along and says, I can fix it. I just need some emergency powers. And finally, they stand in the chariot of state holding the reins of power, and they're revealed as the tyrant. And so Plato says democracy won't last, and the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. Uh, he's the head mm -hmm. of gold, and his administrators and political enforcement class are the arms and chest of silver. They are the ruling class, and everyone else is in the ruled class. They are the abdomen of iron and bronze. And so it's a two-tiered society of a deep state ruling class and everyone else. And uh, the people that are in the everyone else class, uh, they own no property. They have no privacy. The government decides who gets to have kids. The government takes the kids away and indoctrinates them with noble lies. And this is socialism. This is the structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. Now, you skip forward 2,000 years, and you've got Columbus discovering America, and then scholars in Europe hey, say, hey, there's new lands. Maybe we can set up new societies. And so 20 years after Columbus, you have Sir Thomas More write Island of Utopia. It's a fictitious island supposedly discovered by Amerigo Vespucci off the coast of South America. And it's written as a, the word utopia means nowhere. And it's written as a dialogue with a traveler named Highland Deus. And Highland Deus is Latin for uh, peddler of nonsense. And he harkens back to Plato, the structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. And the uh, ruled class own no property. Uh, they live in identical three-story houses, with, and they wear identical clothes, and they eat in identical communal, like a monastery, uh, dining halls. Uh, the government decides who gets to have kids. They take the kids away from the family. The government decides the careers for the kids. And the government tracks everyone, mm. everywhere to go. Uh, you have to have your internal paper passports. And if you're caught without your passport, it's a lifetime of slavery. This is utopia. And then uh, a century later, you have Sir Francis Bacon. He writes The New Atlantis. So he directly refers back to Plato's Atlantis. And it's an island in the, in the South Pacific, a little more scientific because the scientific revolution took place by this time. But it's a ruling class and a ruled class. And someone wrote a farce on it, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Right. Oliver's washed up on an island, his island structured society, and the ruling class is ridiculous, and everybody else has to obey. Why is this important? The pilgrims. Uh, they were originally a company colony, and the investors um, wrote bylaws and looked back to Plato. And so everything was owned in common. Everything gained by cooking, hunting, fishing, trading shall go into ye common stock, and everyone's livelihood comes out of ye common stock. And uh, William Bradford says it failed. They almost starved to death. Yeah, yeah. He says the young man objected to having to do twice as much work as the old guy, but got the same amount. 
The old guy objected to being classed in labor with the young men and considered it a dishonor. And the women objected to having to wash other men's clothes. And he says this was tried by well-meaning people and it proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato, applauded recently by those in Europe. Here, Governor William Bradford specifically says that they referred back to the emptiness of the theory of Plato. And so he said uh, that, uh, that the owning of a property in common would make men happy as if they were wiser than God. He said, so in order that they wouldn't suffer want, another winter of starvation, he said, we had to come up with a fitter plan. And so after much discussion, it was decided every family would get their own plot of land and whatever grew was theirs. He said, this made all hands more industrious. The women went willingly into the field, took their little ones with them, where before they would have alleged weakness and to have compelled them would have been great uh, oppression. So here, America's founders experimented with this social ownership of property. It didn't work. They scrapped it and they gave everybody their own. And so this is uh, a, an experiment that America had uh, that we need to look back at. Now, uh, interrupt me at any time. Uh, in, the, mm -hmm. no. in the book, <laughs> I fast forward to the French Revolution. And so uh, you had their motto was liberté, equalité, fraternité. And fraternity was their word for socialism, this collective, this fraternity. And, uh, or, 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 or Soviet. It's another word for fraternity. Soviet. We'll say that again. Uh, you, you can have, you can have uh, fraternity. You can have a union. You can have Soviet. They all mean the same thing. Oh, correct. The word yeah. Soviet, yes. Yeah. And so uh, the word equality can be interpreted in two ways. One is equal treatment before the law, equal opportunity. The other is everyone having an equal amount of stuff. Yep. And if the fraternity, the collective, the state thinks you have too much stuff, it can take away your stuff and kill you. And so Jean-Jacques Rousseau, father of the French Republic, I mean, of the French Revolution, Rousseau said, if the state says to an individual, it's expedient for the state that you should die, that individual should die because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. And so every socialist communist revolution looks back to the French Revolution. Right. It was a violent overthrowing of the existing order, tear it down, tear it down. And they would turn churches uh, into temples of reason. They'd tear down statues. They'd dig up graves. Uh, they, would, uh, they wanted to change the street names, this, uh, change the calendar to, so they wouldn't have a, a Sabbath rest because it went back to the Bible. It was an intentional effort to de-Christianize France. Yeah, they even, they even took what Notre Dame and uh, put it as a temple of reason. Yeah, they brought a prostitute in, covered yep. her with a sheet. Uh, but the Jacobins were the violent Antifa group of the day. Uh, they went down the street, and if they thought that you had too much, they would just riot. they just grab you. And they would have their ride in the street. They would set up a guillotine, and they would chop off your head right there in the street. Then they would put your head on a pike, a stick, and they would run around and chant and cheer with that person's head on the stick. And then they would put it in some, somebody's yard. And they did this to 30,000 people in Paris. And then there was a rural area called the Vendée. It's really far away in the country. They thought they were safe. Well, guess what? Paris sends its army to the Vendée, and they kill 300,000 men, women, and children, considered the first modern genocide. And so here you have this 
uh, democracy without morals and virtue t- turns into chaos, and out of chaos, you get a dictator. dictator. And in their case, it was Napoleon. Out of this confusion, Napoleon seizes power and makes himself emperor. He has the Napoleonic Wars, which kill six million people across Europe. And afterwards, uh, you have a German kingdom named Prussia. And the king of Prussia said, we can't get conquered as easily as Napoleon again. We need to strengthen our state. So he gets a philosopher named Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. And Hegel teaches at the University of Berlin. And Hegel said, the state is God walking on earth. The state is our mortal God. All the worth that a human being possesses, he possesses only through the state. And so who was a member of a radical student group at the University of Berlin? Karl Marx. And so that's where Karl Marx gets up with his idea of the state being God. Um, You know, uh, there's a great quote from Eisenhower. He said, if this, in some countries, the state claims to be the source of human rights. If the state gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those rights. Yeah. What is it? The, the statement is any, any, country, any nation large enough to give you what you want is big enough to take what you have. Right. Uh, there, uh, I've read through all the speeches of all the presidents, and uh, Gerald Ford said that at least 150 times. Oh. And, uh, and then Ronald Reagan quoted it, but Reagan came after Gerald Ford. Uh, but he, he said, when I sit in Congress, uh, they keep proposing another giveaway program. He says, don't they understand that the government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have? And so socialism is, the, is a bait and switch on a cultural level. You know, you've got shyster salesmen. And they promise one thing but deliver something cheap, and then it's too late. Well, this is a cultural bait and switch. Uh, it's where you promise heaven, but it delivers hell. It's a dream of a perfect utopia, and it turns into a nightmare. Right. And it, it does this every single time. And um, isn't it anyway? Re- isn't it Reagan who said um, uh, they they don't need they don't need communism in hell because they already have it or something along those lines. It sounds like a Reagan yeah. quote. Yeah. Oh. I love, I love what uh, Bob. Mike, do you have anything? I was just gonna say, I love what Bob says. It only happens this way every time. Yeah. <laughs> every socialism, time. socialism only fails every, every single time. Every single time. Does, does socialism come from, uh, when they're, when these people are implementing it, do they think they're doing good or does it always come from, a power grab or evil place. Does somebody you, think they're going to make a utopia? Useful idiots. Right. So the, the people that t- at the top, it's simply a power grab. The people down below are persuaded to think that they're doing good. Mm. And so uh, David Horowitz, uh, who was brought up a communist, then he became a conservative writer, he says that uh, the communists had a saying, the issue's never the issue, the issue's always the revolution. Yep. He mm-hmm. said women's rights, black rights, he goes, those are just minor steps toward the bigger goal, which is socialism. Right. And he says that the people that think those are the real issues, they are what was would be called useful idiots. And mm-hmm. so uh, you look back at uh, this system that Hegel said, and I've mentioned it before, um, so forgive me if those have already heard it. They but need to, they need to take, hear it again. 
if you want to take power away from the people, uh, people will give up their freedom when they're scared. And so you have to create a panic situation where they give up their freedom. It goes back to the beginning of time when the first invention ever was a plow. Remember, Cain was a tiller of the soil. And then people started hitting each other with him. They turned into weapons and people felt insecure. So they gravitate together to form cities. And so they're, when they get people together, somebody's a little better at knowing how to fight and protect than the rest. And everyone says, hey, you be our captain. And so the captain organizes you, you, you fight, you live. That's a good thing. But then this captain ends up having kids and grandkids who turn into a, a elite family, a political family, a political machine, a mob boss, a gang boss. Before you know it, you got a king. And But the people only gave up the freedom when they felt insecure. And so that model keeps getting repeated through history. But I want to go back. So we got Hegel and, uh, at the University of Berlin. And uh, he does his dialectic with a triangle. It's a one corner of the thesis, opposite corner is an antithesis or antithesis, top corner is a synthesis. Sounds complicated, but it's not. You start off with a status quo, you create a problem that's real bad. And then everybody is relieved to settle for your answer that's only half as bad. And then mm -hmm. that synthesis becomes the new starting point. You create another problem that's real bad and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. You keep doing this over and over again. You know, there was 9-11 and we gave up our freedom where now we got to get you know searched when we go through the airport and get our luggage searched. But then we get used to it. And then there's another crisis. And then they say, OK, now you got to wear masks and the, another crisis. And, and each time you're giving up a little more of your independence. It, Bill, and, uh, it, Bill it, it strikes me as like the reverse of the Fibonacci sequence. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where you see the Nautilus and it, it just. It's that half and then half and then it it just strikes me, you know, that that's the golden rate or I guess it would be the golden ratio. But the, the Fibonacci sequence is where they just reduce it to where you have nothing left. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, a, a step type thing. Um, but you so, so going back. So here's Karl Marx. He's a student of Hegel. And he says, OK, how do you create an antithesis? And he says, well, you send in agitators agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers. And what do they do? They find people with grievances. And whether it's economic uh, grievances, racial, ethnic, ethnicity, uh, or economic. And so they would organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners. They'd organize the Muslims against the Christians, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. They really don't care who the two sides are. They really don't care what the issues are. Their goal is a destabilizing crisis where everybody feels fear and panic and they give up their freedoms in knee-jerk reaction to some governor that says, I can settle it, I just need some emergency powers. And this pattern, uh, 45 countries saw the communism this way. Uh, we began to see it creeping uh, into America uh, in the late 1800s where you had Eugene Debs and he founded the Socialist Party of America and there was the Chicago Railroad Company called the Pullman Railroad Car Company. And the George Pullman had a little village for the people to live in. And then he had stores for the people to shop in. And then he had the factory for them to work in. It was a nice little set, set up until orders for railroad cars dropped during an economic crisis. And so now you had a whole lot of people struggling. And so Eugene Debs comes in and he organizes them to riot. And they destroy 
$80 million worth of railroad cars in 20 states. And this rioting and burning is only stopped when the president sends in the army. Grover Cleveland sends in the U.S. Army to restore order. And Grover Cleveland decides he wants to appease these uh, BLM, Antifa, this, this, this rioting. And so he uh, says, well, they're laborers and he'll give them Labor Day. So that's the origin of Labor Day. Hmm. Now, the socialists wanted it on May 1st so they could be in coordination with all the other socialist revolutions around the, the world. But uh, Grover Cleveland said, no, 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 we're going to do it on a different day. So that became September 1st. Eugene Debs went on to be put in prison, and but he got out. And he ran for president five times between 1900 and 1920 as the Socialist Party candidate for president of the United States. 1920, splitting off of the Socialist Party, is the Communist Party USA. And the Communist Party USA runs a candidate for president every year from 1920 to 1940. And then when World War II happened and Franklin Roosevelt made a treaty with Stalin in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party USA said, why should we run another candidate when here we have a president making treaties with the Soviets? And so from 1940 on, the Communist Party USA has supported the Democrat Party. <laughs> and, uh, and now we go to Germany. It was in the 1930s a republic, the Weimar Republic, right. where people voted and so forth. And there was a guy who started a party. It was the National Socialist Workers' Party. You're more familiar with the acronym Nazi. And who was the head of this party but Adolf Hitler? And how did he get into power? He had his brown shirts. They were called Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers. And they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's political opponents and shout down the speaker and disrupt the meeting. And then they would lock arms and block access to buildings. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking? And then they went into the cities and smashed the windows of over 7,000 Jewish stores and looted them and set them on fire in the Kristallnacht, night of broken glass. Let me, uh, and, let me, let me interject this. The BLM riots in Los Angeles, 75% of the businesses that were burned and looted were Jewish, owned. Wow. Wow. I did not know that. You know, hey, real quick, Bill, I, I was wondering, we're, what, 65 days out for the election, and we're in the fear and the emergency orders. Can they really hold that in place for another 65 days to the election, or do you foresee from your historical perspective that they're going to shoot for something in October to re-ante re up? Or what, what's your perspective from a historical standpoint? Right. Well, Saul Linsky, Rules for Radicals, says that you cannot keep your base on a high level of enthusiasm for an extended period of time. So you have to keep coming up with new issues. Mm -hmm. And you have, you have to keep changing your organi your organizational names. So instead of ACORN, you call it SEIU. Instead of Occupy Wall Street, it's now Autonomous Zones. Uh, but you, you have to keep swapping it up. It's the same people you're organizing. You're just changing the issue. So it goes from, you know, hands up, don't shoot, to quiet zones on campuses, to Confederate statues and Confederate flags, to uh, Pledge of Allegiance. They, they keep changing the issue. And the followers keep going along with it. Uh, so, yes, between now and the election, I 
anticipate that they will try to do many, many things. The most normal is called what is an October surprise. And that, why October surprise? Because the election is the first Tuesday in November. And when they do this uh, at the very last minute, the opposite side has no time to respond. And so this is their last chance. You, it used to be just a dirty mailer that would send out something with some far out accusation uh, uh, of, of lies against an opponent. But it's graduated into now all kinds of violent activity. And um, anyway, uh, or economic activity, a sudden stock market crash or, um, or a military activity, something that is uh, unexpected uh, to cause the um, uh, dialogue to change. So when you, mm -hmm. if you have a candidate and he's on a positive role and he keeps talking talk about it in the press, they need to bump it off the front page. Most people only pay attention to the headlines. And so they want to change the headlines uh, from a Republican convention to a hurricane or a killing in, uh, in Wisconsin so, they, so that the, they stop the effect of the positive uh, convention. Yeah, uh, Bill Clinton, I, when Monica Lewinsky was having her, her accusations, he fired off a couple missiles in Bosnia, started a little war in Serbia. But right. it was, gee, timed right at the time when he was being, <laughs> uh, uh, being impeached. Yeah. Now, uh, I, Isaac, back in the sound booth, found that Reagan quote. It's, socialism only works in two places, heaven where they don't need it and hell where they already have it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that... Going back to where you were talking about the the night of broken glass, uh, not the beginning of Nazi, Nazi Germany. Kristallnacht. Yeah, if if you wanted to jump back into that. Oh yeah, and so in the confusion, the public is panicky. They're fearful, and so Hitler usurps power, rounds up his political enemies, has them shot without a trial, and when the dust settles. They have switched from a republic to a dictatorship. Mm. Now, after World War II, uh, Germany, France, England give up their colonies and they turn into brand new countries with brand new leaders. It's a nice, perfect world, except for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, the Soviets decide they want to expand communism. And so they send KGB agents into Czechoslovakia, into Romania, into Bulgaria, into Hungary, into Poland. And what do they do? They find people with grievances. Now, we just came through a world war. And so there's lots of people who uh, had high expectations, but they've been disillusioned. There's people that are economically struggling. And so these KGB agents would come in and identify groups and label them victims and oppressors. And then they would organize protests. And then they would organize riots. And then they would break into violence. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats. So the media would begin to blame the leader of this brand new country for all the problems. And then they would cultivate weak links in the military. And when the public got panicky and confused enough, they would do a coup or a rigged election. They would remove the leader and install a Soviet puppet. And they kept doing this all around the, the world. And Harry S. Truman does nothing. He thinks that his United Nations will bring world peace. But the next president is Eisenhower, and he fights fire with fire. And so you have a situation with Iran 
deciding to side with the Soviet Union. And the leader named Mazadek, he nationalizes the Iranian oil industry. And you say, big deal. Well, wait a second. Winston Churchill changed the British Navy from coal to oil, but Britain didn't have any oil. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. <laughs> so B British Petroleum is really the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And when Mazadek nationalized it, Britain had literally no oil. And so Britain goes to Eisenhower. Eisenhower has his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, approved the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's called Operation Ajax. And the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. So he's over in Tehran. And what does he do? He recruits mobsters, gangsters, criminals, radical imams, and he stages protests and riots, and they attack mosques. And then they co-opt the media with bribes and threats. They cultivate weak links in the military. And when the country gets confused and panicky enough, panicky enough they put Mazadek under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies, and they install the Shah, who loved America because we put him in. And the CIA did the same thing in Guatemala in 1954, the Congo 1960, Dominican Republic, even Chile 1973. But the KGB did the same thing. And there's pictures of Brezhnev hugging Yasser Arafat and helping him to start the PLO, and Brezhnev hugging Castro and helping him to take over Cuba. And then the Russians began to take over countries in Latin South America in Africa and the, the Chinese in the Far East. This is called the... Cold War. And it's the basis of every spy novel, right? You go to a third world country, you run into the Russians, the KGB, you run into the CIA, and they're going to do an assassination. And the only difference this time around is it's taking place on American soil. <laughs> These tactics have been perfected for 70 years how to do this disruption of a society so that you can replace a leader. Now, we do know there are people in our CIA and Department of Justice and these different departments that do not like our president. And they have been trying to try to get rid of him for the last four years right. with a false Russian collusion narrative and all these different things. And uh, somebody listening in on a phone call with Ukraine and wanting to, to blame Trump for something said wrong in the... So we, there are people in the military that have been... Uh, put in there by the previous administration that do not like our president. And so when you see the rioting taking place, it appears very orchestrated. Uh, you don't have pallets of bricks dropped off right, uh, right where they're going to have a peaceful protest by accident all across the country. There's videotape of Dallas, Texas, and somebody's got a truck and they're unloading pallets of bricks. I spoke in Emporia, Kansas. And they said, yeah, somebody dropped off a pallet of bricks. There was no construction in the entire area, but it was right where they were going to have a peaceful protest. And so this looks like it's being planned. And then uh, I mentioned before uh, that I uh, used to live in St. Louis and 30 miles from Ferguson. I spoke in Ferguson at churches there, um, but 99% of the people riding in Ferguson were not from Ferguson. They were brought in by Moore, M-O-R-E, Missourians Organizing for Reform and Empowerment. And you can Google it. Moore received $30 million from George Soros. 
and they trained them how to riot in inner city churches, and they would show them how to lock arms and block streets. And they even trained them how to give emotional speeches when a camera shoved in your face. And, uh, and so after their, they trashed Ferguson, uh, they were not paid. They were promised $5,000 a person. And so they took over the Moore headquarters. And the city council in St. Louis condemned their taking it over. But then they started to cut the check campaign. It gained traction in the news. And then finally they cut the check and paid them off. But it was a rent to mob. And they moved the same people to Milwaukee, to Charlotte, to Baltimore. And so that's what we're seeing. Uh, now, when you realize that the, the COVID response, when you analyze it, the first thing was what? Let criminals out of jail. MS-13 members, you know, ISIS members, you let them out. And then crime goes up in the cities. It's like, gee, we didn't see that happening. Let criminals out and crime goes up. And then what happens? Uh, some people feel unsafe and move out of the city. Who moves out? Well, maybe those with children, maybe those with families, certainly those with the financial resources to be able to move out. Well, they usually belong to a certain political party, right? Pro-family people. Well, who's left in the city? Maybe more people that are dependent on government entitlement programs. Well, yeah. they tend to belong to a different political party. And then you have violence that smashes store windows, and then the COVID response is to put businesses out of business, and so businesses leave the city. Well, pro-business people, they usually belong to that first political party. And then you shut down churches, and that's where social conservatives and pro-life people organize. And then you shut the schools down, and you let kids out who have been indoctrinated with hate America. Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and 75% of the rioters are these spoiled high school and college kids that have been indoctrinated with hate America, and, uh, and then also um, single middle-aged women, for some reason, that uh, participate in these events. Now, um, the net result of the COVID response was people that tend to belong to one political party move out of the city leaving the other party with a, monop a monopoly on city politics. And in presidential election years, whoever wins this big city usually ends up winning the state. And whoever wins the state gets all the electoral votes for the state, and the president is elected by electoral votes. So there is a clear line of uh, the COVID response benefiting one particular political party. But you go back and you look at this history of the creation and the using of crises for a political purpose. You know, you look at the nefarious nature of, of this communist infusion and having been perfected since the 1800s and just continuing to learn from their mistakes and, you know, tweaking it until it's a well-oiled machine. But... There's also areas that they, as, as organized as it is, there's areas that they haven't taken into consideration that, you know, there, there is a hope. There's always a hope. And God's greater. I mean, many people didn't expect Trump to win. He did. It, it didn't seem remotely possible. But I also see, too, that in some cases it strikes me that the left is out over their skis. And I'll give mm -hmm. you an example. They've shut the universities. Well, that, that was a place where you could do some serious ballot harvesting. 
Mm-hmm. And now they, they don't have access to that. So there, there's some things that are counterproductive to their methods that they're doing now. But granted, the 50 million vote-by-mail ballots that we, we haven't seen in any election in the history of our nation, uh, how, what they're going to do with those, if they're well-organized enough to be able to hit the major cities and harvest those like they did to us in California. I mean, we had, we had young Kim in her freshman orientation as a Congress member on election night and going there to train and then being recalled back while they put the first Democrat elected in that district because the ballot harvesting. And we had had the largest increase in low propensity voter turnout uh, in, in that region in quite some time and still wasn't enough to overcome what they did to us in harvesting. But then there's also the, the realization that there's been more Republican registrations exceeding Democrats for the first time in quite a while. So I'm not sure what to make of all this. There's so many variables in it. The other, the other thing where I see the same thing in, in the hope and uh, the left being over their skis is, you know, the, the response. We see it just proof here at Godspeak where you can't go to church. Really? We can't go to church? And then 3,000 plus people show up. Um, to, in, in civil disobedience, standing up for their First Amendment rights. And it, that's, that's huge. And, uh, and they don't expect churches to do that because of that fear that you were talking about, Bill, that they're, they're, they're afraid, but we don't have a spirit of fear. They don't, they don't, they don't see that. They don't understand yeah. how we could do that. They don't understand how we can have uh, recall Gavin Newsom tables set up and, and voter registration set up. They, they don't they're not banking on that. And so that's where, where we come in and we just go, look, we're not afraid. We know it's right. We have our First Amendment. We have our Second Amendment. Even if we didn't have the First Amendment or the Second right. Amendment, we'd still we'd do still it. still show up. Right. Because these are inalienable rights. Right. And we're going to push back. Yep. So, but we're hoping that others awaken. Now, I don't know if you heard the news, but the C3 churches, uh, the, the pastor, Pastor Jurgen, came two and a half hours to be with us on the Sunday we were open. He was so moved, he went back and, and then had me do a Zoom call and their entire group of churches opened this last Sunday. Shepherd yep. of the Hills opened. Yep. We've had a number of churches, but they're, they're also stepping up because two churches in the Silicon Valley, both Calvary Chapel, San Jose, and another church in the, in the Santa Clara Valley have both been fined uh, $5,000, the other pastor 10000 for Sunday morning, Sunday night, and they're threatened to be incarcerated this next Sunday. Uh, I'm, and, and more power to them, they're willing to be incarcerated. That optic is hopefully going to awaken some of the pastors that have embraced the Black Lives Matter, haven't done their homework, don't realize what's at stake. I, I love hopes all things. And I, I just, I don't want the viewers tonight to think that we're without hope because they're going to magically put 50 million new vote by mail ballots out there. It, it, it is an insurmountable picture, granted. But, but God's in the business of overcoming that. Amen. And if my people were called by my name, this is, this is a critical call to the church, Amen. the soul of the nation, to really ask, are, do we value liberty? Yeah. Or do we value yeah. our possessions and our buildings mm-hmm. and our, our budgets? Mm-hmm. What is the church about? This is a defining moment for the church. You know, Bill, I, a real quick question is that in the last 70 or 80 years that they've been fine-tuning this, it seems this time around we have a defined, definitive 
difference between the two sides. And, uh, you know, you watch the uh, DNC, it's all about everything negative about Trump. In fact, somebody was saying, tell me why you're voting with, for Biden, but you can't use the word Trump anytime in your argument of why you're voting for him. But there's a definitive difference that the, the, probably the strongest in the history of the elections I've been alive, has that been in existence over the last 70 years, such a huge difference in the, in the two opposing uh, forces? No, I think God is giving us a choice, and he wants to make the choice real clear. You're either going to vote pro-life or pro-death. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you, you can't study history without realizing every single generation has faced crises. Whether it was Attila the Hun with an army of a half a million people wiping out cities all across Europe, or Genghis Khan conquering from Korea to Hungary, killing 30 million people, or you know Ivan the Terrible, and or you know the, the bubonic plague, every single generation has has had a crisis. And you know what? We get through this crisis, there'll be another one. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like the crises of every generation is a self-sorting out of the sheep and the goats. It's not the ultimate sorting out with Jesus at the day of judgment, says I was hungry and you fed me, right? But in a way, it is an opportunity for us to show whose side we're on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be part of the problem? Or are you going to ignore the problem? Or are you going to be part of the answer? Ministering God's love to a hurting world, standing up for righteousness, defending the defenseless. And so in freshman chemistry, uh, we would have like a beaker with some solution and you would pour in a catalyst that would cause it to uh, have some things precipitate and get heavy and fall to the bottom of the beaker. And other things turn into little bubbles that go up. And so it's almost like the crisis of each generation is the catalyst to reveal, are you going to go uh, up or down? What, what are you made of? And, you know, uh, people say, well, God knows my heart. It's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, God knew what was in Abraham's heart. But he wanted to see Abraham take his son Isaac and to the top of Mount Moriah and be willing to kill him. And, you know, uh, I was like a guy watching TV and you go up to him and you say, hey, have you told your wife you love her recently? Nah, but she knows my heart. It's like, okay, yeah. uh, have you done anything to show your wife you love her recently? Nah, but she knows my heart. It's like, dude, we need to have a talk, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, and so you, people say, well, God knows my heart. Yes, he does know your heart, but he wants to hear some words out of your mouth, and he wants to see some actions. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. the crisis of the era is the opportunity for us right. to show, am yeah. I going to be like Peter and the apostles? And when they were persecuted, they didn't say, take away this persecution. What did they pray? Lord, grant your servants boldness. Yeah. To proclaim your word. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jesus himself, Jesus' very first sermon ended with them wanting to shove him off a cliff. Yep. This is Jesus. And another sermon, it says they picked up rocks to stone him to death. Another one, uh, you know, they, they're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to... and. I mean, he's invited to somebody's house for dinner, and the person notices that he didn't wash his hands. And Jesus says, he says, you Pharisees are more concerned about the outside of the cup than not the inside. And the 
You know, he lays into the guy. And the lawyer said, well, Jesus, by saying that, you're insulting us lawyers. He goes, let me tell you about you lawyers. You lay burdens on people too heavy to carry. Don't even lift your finger. And, I mean, here he is uh, telling them uh, pretty bluntly. And, and then the chapter ends. And you wonder if they ever got around to eating dinner. And so here, the Jesus we follow had backbone. He had guts to those who were prideful and unrighteous. He was very, very strong to the humble. Uh, he was very loving, right? And so here, the Jesus that we follow has backbone to stand up to injustice, to stand up to unrighteousness. And, uh, and you know, the apostles did, and you read through church history. So this is just our turn. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, you know, imagine if you got to heaven and everything was done and you're sitting around talking to Moses, David, and Gideon, and you're hearing all their exciting stories, and you say to yourself, uh, and they all ask you, so tell us your story. And you say, eh, it was all done by the time I came around. They're going to say, boring. So for the rest of eternity, you'll be known as the boring story guy. It's like, <laughs> and, and so, no, it, it's almost like, especially men, uh, you would die without a challenge. I mean, men, you know, little boys, if, I'm, I'm one of 11 kids. I have five brothers and five sisters. I mean, it, we, we would start fights just to fight. I mean, it was like you, you wanted competition. You know, you, you grow up wanting to play in sports and wanting to come. What if it was, you know, everybody gets your little prize? You know, it's, it's like, no. And so this is the ultimate, ultimate. This is reality. This is life. And God has given us a purpose and we get to get involved in the fight and stand up for our Lord and Savior. And um, and I want to thank you, Pastor Rob, for having the courage to do it. And it does take courage, but people are inspired by your courage yeah. to em- emulate you. Yeah. And I believe that's the spirit of the Lord Amen. Uh, yeah. that's moving through you and inspiring others to stand up. And so that we can manifest uh, Jesus to this hurting and dying world. Yeah. You know, Bill, if, 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 if I can do it, Anybody can do it. it. It it really, I mean, God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And and if our little congregation can do it, any congregation can do it. If we can do it in California, you can do it anywhere in the country. There's there's just no excuse. Yeah. That he's he's shown you that the most simplistic element uh, and 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 players. If they're, they're capable of this. Yeah. Anyone can do it. I, I wanted to read this to you. It was sent to me, and we're, we're kind of coming to the top of the hour. We've got a, about three, three or four more minutes, but um, I was blessed by it. It's by a man named Dale Partridge. I don't know him. Uh, I, I saw his Instagram page. I, I was intrigued by it, and I'm, I'm gonna, I followed him. But I loved this comment that he put on a meme, and it says, the current political climate, while difficult, has been great for the church. How? It finally revealed whether your pastor is wise or simply knowledgeable, courageous or spineless, theological or cultural. Ultimately, you are now beginning to see if your church is about biblical truth, which will be hated, or carnal entertainment, which will be celebrated. Loyalties will be clarified. I thought it was a... Very clear and concise analysis of where we are right now. You, you know, added on to what Rob just said, what you said before, Rob said it several times. This is the most exciting time to be alive. You've been training for this your whole entire life, 
And now's your chance to be tested and how we're going to stand up and how we're going to defend and how we're going to talk for God. It's an exciting time. And Rob's right there in the front being tested through this and being excited about doing it. And he has gained so much peace and love and humility in the last two months. It's just been amazing to watch. Well, and, and Rob, I'm impressed with uh, how the Lord is using you to raise up young men and women uh, to be courageous leaders. Micah there and Charlie Kirk and the, the impact that you're having. Um, you know, you, you read of uh, the Revolutionary War. Most of the people that fought and were leaders were under 30. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Th- Thomas Jefferson was uh, 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I mean, I could go through the list of them, but uh, I think the youngest one was 19 years old, and he was a signer of the Declaration. And so you have uh, the young people uh, that are being rising up, and to me, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is an exciting time to be alive. You know, if you were to, you know, when we're um, 10,000 years into eternity and you look back uh, on Earth, this is, you know, um, one of those times that I think is a, is a pivot point in, in God's entire plan. You know, I um, and you mentioned we're near the top of the hour, but I sent out a daily email called American Minute. Uh, my website's AmericanMinute.com. Uh, I did one recently on um, uh, the, the faith of astronomers. Uh, you know, there's Isaac Newton and Kepler and Copernicus and so forth, Galileo, and have great quotes in there about them talking about, you know, God in the heavens, created the heavens. Uh, but one of them was uh, the Hubble telescope. And uh, it's our orbits the Earth, so it's not uh, hindered by the atmosphere. And so in 2003, 2004, uh, for an entire month, it focused on a little square in the sky, uh, uh, one-tenth of the diameter of the moon. So if you're looking at the moon, imagine just one-tenth of the the diameter. And uh, this little square of the sky was off the side of Orion. And they found in developing the, the... photographic images of this square, that in that little square, one-tenth of the size of the moon, was 10,000 galaxies. 10,000. And that little square is just one twenty-sixth millionth of the sky. In other words, the God that we serve is truly infinite. He is truly all-powerful. He does truly know everything. The only, and, and he made us because he wanted creatures in his image that could love him Amen. And, and trust in him. And so this life is the, this great creator made us so that, the, and so this is our chance to stand up for the Lord, right? We're all sinners. He sent his son Jesus to take to pay for all of our sins. So we have access to the father. But we have this opportunity to live our lives for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. That's a that that's a that's the best note to end on, Bill, because Amen. we want everything we do to bring glory to Him, and we want we want everyone who watches this to to be connected to Him. He is life, and in Him is the fullness of life, and He is the source of liberty. And in a, in a season where we're watching all of that disappear, 
we want people to realize he will never leave us nor forsake us if we would turn from that which we've, we've fallen in love with, the, the, the creature or, or the, the baubles and the trinkets, the gifts as opposed to the giver, and return to the Lord. He's got so much more in store for us, and there is freedom and abundance in his presence. So let that be a call to the nation. And I, I, I love, Bill, how you always conclude bringing it to a place where it needs to be right before the Lord. And that blesses me. That's your preacher's heart, Bill. Amen. Well, bless you. And it's an honor to be with everyone tonight. Yeah. And it's late where you are. And, um, and we're going to, I'm going to watch the president speak, but I, I, I wanted to say thank you. And we'll, we'll have this broadcast tonight at eight. The folks listening are realizing it's already pre-recorded. but uh, thank you, especially today when you answered my call. And I, I love when you share and you've, you've given us so much insight. And, uh, when you're when you're ready to come out to California, I'm still waiting for you. So, mm-hmm. Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over. People people enjoy seeing you on the live stream, but I love having you in person. So please yeah. come. Yeah. All right, I will. All right. Let me let me close this in prayer, and and then I'll I'll read uh, the blessing. Lord, thank you for Bill and his wife, and Lord the work he's doing across the country, and you know waking up in a new city uh, almost seems like every night as he is traversing the nation bringing these truths and awakening America to it, her past, that we, we would realize the rich heritage we possess and that this gift we've been given need not perish in our lifetime. Lord, we do pray for an awakening across the nation. And I pray that we would revisit these timeless truths and we would longingly want to come back to a place where we would honor you. We thank you for our republic. We ask that you would awaken us to our responsibilities and that the church would awaken and that the conformity of, of Marxism, socialism, like the Tower of Babel, Lord, that does nothing but destroy the uniqueness of man, the diversity of man. And, and so God, please, I, I, I pray that we would realize that, not fall prey as over 40 nations in the history of the world have, that only results in death and destruction and chaos. God, please, I pray that you'd have mercy on our land as we approach this election in less than 70 days. Have mercy on us, God, please. And we ask that there would be an awakening and a revival. And so, God, we commit that to you. And and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I'll read this, Bill, and that's for you and for all who are tuning in tonight. Numbers chapter 6 The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. 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 Well, Bill, thanks again. And uh, just to let everyone know, tomorrow night, um, Madison is going to be here. Hopefully the youngest Congress member in the history of the United States. Mm. And, um, And then we'll have the doctor on Saturday night. So thanks for joining us. Bill, thank you. God bless you all. We'll see you tomorrow night. All right. God bless.